the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt. Todd Marquardt, attorney at law in Texas. If you're a millionaire or a thousandaire, Talk Law Radio is now on the air. Call in with your business law question, your elder law question. Veteran aid, Medicaid, build a business to get paid. 210-308-8867. Or ask a question online at marquardtlawfirm.com. That's M-A-R-Q-U-A-R-D-T, lawfirm.com. And now, it's Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt. Welcome to Talk Law Radio. I'm Todd Marquardt. We're on 9.30 a.m. The Answer, and later we'll be uploaded to Apple Podcasts and podcasts that you can listen to everywhere. Today's show is about juvenile justice. How exciting is that? Okay, Marquardt Law Firm is our sponsor state law, including last wills, living trusts, and tax-protected inheritance plans, old businesses and new businesses which might have issues with corporations, contracts, LLCs, family-limited partnerships, and we can represent those who are facing problems from lack of planning, like in district court, county court, and probate court. Again, today's show is about juvenile justice, when minor children are accused of crime. The State Bar of Texas is the state agency that governs attorney law licenses, and the State Bar wants attorneys to inform the public about the law. But because legal advice must be tailored to the specific circumstances of each case, and because laws are ever-changing, material discussed in this program is meant for general informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice. Although the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information you hear today should be relied upon only when coordinated with your individual professional advice. Before we get started talking about the law, let's begin with prayer. Dear God, thank you for this day and for all the blessings and gifts that you give to us. Please forgive us for our sins, for our mistakes, for doing the wrong thing, or failing to do your will. Please help Attorney Daniel Palmer and me give good information to the listeners about juvenile law today. Help us to use the gifts that you've given us for the good of your people, for our own good, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now it's time to discover your legal issue blind spots by listening to me talk about the law on the radio. Today's show, like I said, is about juvenile law when minor children are accused of crime. And today our guest is Daniel Palmer. He last appeared on our show uh, June 5th, 2021. So it was about a year ago, and he talked about music law. Since it's been a while, Daniel, why don't you uh, tell everyone a little bit about yourself? How did you uh, arrive at this uh, point in history? So uh, my name is Daniel Palmer. Um, as you had stated, I'm a native San Antonian. i um, been practicing law for almost 11 years now, um, juvenile law for about seven years, and i um, excited to be here and, and talk about it. It's an interesting area of law that um, doesn't get talked about a whole lot, um, but I think that it's fascinating, and I think that anyone with children um, that are minors uh, should know more, more about it. Oh, yeah. And did you grow up here? I did. Um, born and raised in San Antonio. Um, I went to Holy Spirit Mid- uh, Elementary and Middle School and Antonian High School, um, I lived in Austin for college and then got back to San Antonio as quickly as I could. So you went to UT? I did. Very proud. Okay. 
And you went to St. Mary's Law School. I did. I went to St. Mary's Law School, and um, as soon as I graduated, I started working at the district attorney's office here in Bear County. Um, and then after exiting the DA's office, uh, did some work at a personal injury firm and then opened up my own firm where I did a lot of juvenile law. You have a, a wide variety of practice experience. Yeah, yeah. I wore quite a few different hats uh, during my period as an attorney. And in addition to juvenile law, nowadays you focus on last wills and trusts and probate and guardianship. I do. And, um, you know, juvenile law does sometimes come up with, with my clients dealing with, uh, you know, creating an estate plan or a guardianship or so on and so forth. I was just talking to somebody the other day um, who I helped with their living trust and estate plan, and they have a child that's uh, incarcerated right now. And so we were uh, discussing what would happen if that child inherited assets. Mm -hmm. And there are some things that people can do, and I'll talk more about that at the legacy segment in our show. Okay. Tell us a little bit about juvenile law. Give us some history and background on that. Sure. So juvenile law is kind of an interesting area. It is uh, a specialty court that is basically created specifically to deal with uh, minors that have been accused of criminal offenses. Um, it's very different than criminal law, um, which is why it doesn't have a whole lot of practitioners. It's kind of quasi-family law, quasi-criminal law. And interestingly enough, it's it's fairly new to the United States. Um, the first juvenile court system opened in 1899 uh, up in Chicago. And uh, other than that, you know, kids had basically been treated like adults in a lot of situations. So the introduction of juvenile courts was really, really important. Um, as it progressed, we've seen a lot of changes. Um, you know, the first major change, I believe, was in the 1950s. Um, there was a lot of public concern over the effectiveness of the juvenile system, basically for several reasons. But the main reason is that these judges are allowed, uh, at that time, a significant amount of discretion. So depending on the judge's mood or temperament, um, you know, that could uh, influence how they punish a child. So we did see some changes in the 1960s where children started to um, get more protections, some of the same due process protections that adults had that juveniles um, hadn't had previously. Um, we also saw situations to where they tightened up the laws regarding uh, juveniles being tried as adults. So kind of moving forward a little bit in the 80s and 90s, um, we started seeing very tough enforcement uh, for punishments uh, on juveniles. And that was because of a kind of a perceived idea that juvenile or juvenile judges were, were light on crime and that juvenile crimes were on the rise. So that was not a great time for juvenile law. We, we saw overcrowded uh, courts. We saw overcrowded juvenile detention centers. Um, so that led into the 2000s where we saw significant sweeping legislation, not only in states, but, but federally as well. Um, and so we're kind of on the right path, um, and juveniles are seeing more protections than they have ever in history. Okay, well, the premise there being that children should be treated differently, and uh, I'm curious about that. Why should they? Sure. So, you know, that's a question that uh, legislation and courts have dealt with for a long time. And the idea, the public uh, policy, I guess, behind it would be that, um, one, uh, and this is the most important, uh, juveniles are different than adults. Their brains aren't fully formed yet. Um, we know now that uh, your brain isn't fully formed often until you're in your 20s. So because their brains work differently, we have to treat them a little bit differently. Um, so that's really important. But number two, um, you're going to hear me say this word a lot throughout the conversation. The word of the day is rehabilitation. Uh, the younger an offender is, the more likely they are to um, to, I guess, benefit from rehabilitation. So going through different government or court programs to help them deal with um, grief, help them deal with abuse, help them deal with things in their environment that are partially responsible for them committing these crimes. Okay. Yeah, my oldest son, Reagan, had decided that when he was 12, he was uh, ready to move out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I tell a lot of our clients that 
um, the age 25 is really the new 18. If you're going to leave an inheritance, uh, I wouldn't leave it to an 18-year-old because what would an 18-year-old do with a bunch of money? Well, if they're a, a male child, they'd probably buy the, the most expensive a car they could afford. Um, and the reason I come up with age 25 is because I heard that the auto insurance industry did a study and they found that the human brain wasn't fully developed until age 25 and that's why they give you a discount on your car insurance when you turn 25. It's Makes like, sense. congratulations, your brain is fully developed. <laughs> <laughs> we have to take a break. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Real estate questions have profound impacts on your business or estate. Changes of ownership to your real estate could impact your business or your legacy to your children and grandchildren. It may be less expensive to prevent a mistake than to correct one. If you have real estate questions, it's a good idea to contact an attorney who focuses on last wills, living trusts, and tax-protected inheritance plans. Call today to schedule your no-cost legal consultation. 210-530-4278. That's 210-530-4278. Marquardt Law Firm. Welcome back to Talk Law Radio. I'm Todd Marquardt here with attorney Daniel Palmer. We're talking about juvenile justice, criminal laws that apply to minor children when they're accused of crime. You told us in the last segment a little bit about the background and history of juvenile justice and a little bit about why children should be treated differently. Because they're different. (laughs) That makes total sense. Um, Help us understand what a path through the juvenile justice system would look like. Sure. So um, obviously I'll be giving listeners uh, the abridged version of this, um, but I think it's important to talk about uh, the path that children take and the differences that uh, you see from adult criminal court. So if a child, um, so anyone basically under the age of 17, and this is in Texas, um, if they commit any crime that is listed under the penal code, um, then they are detained, um, and they're taken to what's called a juvenile detention center um, in Bear County. We have ours here uh, just south of downtown. And uh, they would be booked, basically, and they would be kept in the juvenile detention center. Uh, this is where almost immediately it becomes different from adult criminal uh, courts is with an adult criminal court, if you're accused of a crime, the judge will post what's called a bail or a bond. So it's a certain amount that you can pay um, in order to be released from jail at that time and then just be supervised uh, uh, by basically the judge or the pretrial division. But with children, we don't have that. Um, With children, they go into detention, and then within 24 hours, they're required to have what's called a detention hearing. At that, they'll meet with the judge, and uh, there will be a prosecutor there, and if and they will have a defense attorney, and the judge will decide at that point if they think that the child should be released to the parents, um, if they should be released to a, another entity, um, CPS sometimes, um, or if they should be kept in detention. And um, there are a lot of factors that go into it, the seriousness of the crime, um, you know, if the child is uh, well-suited to be back out in the community, um, and there's a few other factors. Now, if the judge keeps them in detention, the law requires that they have another detention hearing within 10 days, uh, and they kind of reassess how is the child doing in detention, how is he acting, stuff like that. Um, And that can keep going on uh, basically indefinitely. So we see at that point um, that if the detention hearing goes well and the child gets out, um, then at that point they're basically on pretrial. So Uh, They would be given a court date. They can show up to that court date, and uh, then they'll decide with their attorney basically where they want this case to go. If it's going to go to trial, if they're going to take some sort of plea bargain agreement, um, there's a lot of different options. Okay. You mentioned that there was a hearing after 10 days, and and that pattern could continue. So a a child in detention will get a hearing every 10 days? Correct. It's required by law. Okay. And you mentioned uh, the the plea bargain. Maybe they just uh, plead no contest and agree to some type of 
what would that look like? Is it probation? Sure. So um, this, again, is one of the, the slight differences with uh, a juvenile court as opposed to adult court. Um, children, instead of pleading guilty or not guilty, they'll p- plead uh, true or not true to the facts that are presented to them. Um, and they're not called defendants, actually. They're called respondents um, because the court almost treats it like a civil court. Um, so there are different options that the child can undertake. Um, obviously, one option is going to trial. Um, you know, they can agree to probation, uh, child's probation. And basically what happens there is very similar to adult probation. Um, they would have certain conditions that they are required uh, to undertake based on the probation. Um, it's a bit different than adult court, uh, mainly because of the different programs that are offered. You know, again, um, word of the day is rehabilitation. We're trying to um, create a, a good future uh, for these children, and it's a very collaborative process with the prosecutors in this. And so they might do programs like learning to ride and take care of horses. Um, they do a lot of group building activities. So they're different from your traditional probations in, in, in adult court. Okay. And if if they find true and the judge says that they should stay in detention, uh, in your experience, but what does that look like? Is it similar to a jail or what would they do all day? So it really depends on the county. Um, you know, in the bigger counties, there are a lot more resources for the children. Um, you know, they're like, again, these, these horse riding classes, for example, you're not going to see those in, in smaller counties. It's very rare. Um, I've been to counties to where the entire juvenile justice, uh, jail has three cells in it. Um, you know, as opposed to Bear County, which has significantly more. So typically the bigger the county, um, the more resources they will have. Okay. And what would some outcomes look like? Sure. So um, I think it's important to talk about you know what the child can be sentenced to because the outcomes look a little bit different for each. So ideally, um, what I'm always looking for uh, if I'm dealing with a case is trying to get the child, if we can't get it dismissed, trying to get the child on something called a deferred contract or deferred prosecution. And that is kind of similar to deferred adjudication for an adult. Um, if listeners don't know what that is, basically uh, someone will plead no contest to uh, a crime and they are required to do a certain number of things that the court asks them to do. If they finish it completely, then the judge will dismiss the case. Deferred contract's a little bit different. A child would never plea in that. It's basically an agreement um, with the prosecutors that, hey, I'm going to do these things you ask me to do. Um, I won't get in trouble. I won't do anything wrong. And if you do that, it will never even go in front of a judge. Um, it basically gets just dismissed. So if that's the case, they're done. Um, you know, they're eligible to have their records sealed very quickly, um, and they don't have to do anything more with the courts. Now, if they're on formal probation, um, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit stricter. They would be meeting with their probation officer, um, oftentimes weekly. They will have a lot more conditions that they have to follow, and the length of time is is typically quite a bit more. Um, now, if they go to, if they're sentenced to, uh, you know, juvenile jail or detention center, then I mean, there's uh, depending on the crime, they could be there you know, anywhere from a few months um, to if it's a very, very serious crime, they could be there for years until they turn 19. Um, They could potentially get on parole at that point, but they could also just be transferred to an adult prison and be there for years. How about ankle monitors? Very common. And what's also very common is kids cutting off those ankle monitors. Um, You know, that's why judges are a little bit reluctant um, to require that, uh, just because... um, Children really do cut them off a lot. And uh, in juvenile court, obviously, um, kids... But the monitor knows that, and the police come, right? That's true. Um, The problem, though, that the courts run into is they're very expensive devices, and children usually don't have jobs, um, Mm -hmm. and so it's hard for them to pay it back. So it kind of falls on the parents, and so a lot of those fees get eaten up um, by the taxpayers. When a child is in the the juvenile justice system and and going through that those detention hearings um how is assistance of legal counsel uh assigned or or paid for 
Sure. That's a good question. So um, Texas law requires it, uh, requires that they have an attorney. A, a child is not allowed to represent themselves. Um, so they will be appointed an attorney before they even get to their first detention hearing. And what if the parent says, he did it. This is true. We don't need an attorney. Just sentence him and get on with it. No, that's that's another good question. So I've, I've seen that happen before. I've had that happen to me before. Um, and juveniles are interesting because they, they do, the judges will talk to the parents in detail about what happened, um, but they can't use the parents' statements uh, against the child when sentencing. Oh, okay. And so you said an attorney would be appointed, but, but that's only if they're in poverty, right? Correct. So um, they have to be below a certain, the parents have to, ha uh, excuse me, have a certain amount uh, of income uh, that's pretty low. And if it's low enough, then they can apply for a court-appointed attorney. Um, if they're above that level, then they have to hire an attorney. Yeah, basically, I think if you're on government benefits, then you qualify. And if you're not, then maybe they have to look at it a little more closely. That's correct. Okay. And so ankle monitors is, is one thing. Um, how about Sometimes in the news, uh, I've never really known anybody personally that was a child that was uh, tried as an adult, mm -hmm. but I hear about it in the news a little bit. Um, how, does th how does that happen? Sure. So uh, they're called certify and transfer hearings. Um, if you ask anyone in the court, they'll call them CNT hearings. And they're interesting because you can have situations where someone who commits a crime as a child um, is transferred to an adult court for the case to be heard. Um, now, in Texas, the youngest age that a child could be potentially tried as an adult is 14. So if you're under 14, it's going to juvenile court no matter what you did. Um, but what's important to know is that even though someone is 14, there's only certain crimes that uh, they commit that could be make them eligible to transfer to adult court. Um, capital murder is one. Um, I know that any first-degree felonies fall under that category. Um, and then there's some types of aggravated uh, you know, drug offenses, like selling large amounts of drugs that make them eligible. Now, once they get to 15 years old, um, then any felony offense at all um, can be could potentially send them to adult court. Now, usually it doesn't happen unless it's a very violent offense, um, but technically uh, they could actually be sent to court for a low level, or excuse me, sent to adult court for a low level felony offense. And so I guess the public policy behind these age limits and, and when transfers can occur and what circumstances, that would be based on a age of responsibility. That's the idea, yeah. Um, you know, there are some people that argue that the numbers are, are arbitrary, um, but I think that there, ha I mean, there has to be a cutoff somewhere. Mm -hmm. When does the child really understand that what he did was wrong and sure. have control over his be own behavior? Sure. And, in, you know, I think that it's really important to note that um, a, a child isn't just automatically transferred to an adult court um, you know, if they've committed a crime, like I've talked about, and are, are of a certain age, um, the certification hearing that they have to go through that's required by law in front of a juvenile judge allows both the prosecution and the juvenile's attorney um, to basically argue their sides as to why they, the child should or should not be sent to uh, an adult court. It's very rare that children are certified. Um, you know, like I said, I had practiced juvenile for seven years, and I think I've only taken part in a handful of, uh, you know, of juvenile certification hearings, and, and I've handled hundreds of cases. Did you or do you still uh, follow these children to, to find out if they were rehabil rehabilitated and, and doing well? Um, yes, there have been a few that I am still in contact with, um, their parents. Um, but I'm glad you brought it up because one thing that's very different from juvenile court than with adult court is a little what we talked about earlier regarding um, someone being assigned a court-appointed attorney. In adult court, uh, you could be assigned, you know, if you're below the poverty line, you could be signed an assigned an attorney, and then, you know, maybe they go to trial on the case, or maybe you plea it out, and then you're done with that client. You'll probably never see him again. 
Um, if they commit another crime, they're just assigned another random attorney. But in juvenile court, if you are assigned uh, to a child as an attorney and you finish out the case and they commit a different crime later on, you get assigned to them again. So some of these kids, um, you know, I didn't do a whole lot of court appointments, but the ones that I did, sometimes I represented them for, for years. And is that why you enjoy that area of practice? I think the biggest reason, yes, um, that I enjoy the area of practice is uh, because you're so involved in the rehabilitation process um, and you really form relationships with these kids. Um, and so a lot of them don't want to let you down and, and that can help them out. And you've seen positive outcomes? I've seen hugely positive outcomes with some of the kids. Awesome. Yeah. we got to take another break. We'll be right back. We'll talk about some famous people who had uh, criminal uh, tendencies in their childhood. So stay tuned. Law Radio with Todd Marquardt is sponsored by the Marquardt Law Firm and does not attempt to solve your individual legal problems upon the basis of information contained herein. Instead, contact an attorney to discuss the specific facts and circumstances of your unique situation. The views and opinions of this program do not reflect the views of the Salem Media Group. Welcome back to Talk Law Radio. I'm Todd Marquardt, and we're learning about juvenile law today children, minor children accused of crimes and the system that they go through. Uh, before we went to the break, we had been talking about what it was like to get through the system. And uh, now I'd like to talk about some famous people that you might not be aware of were uh, criminals in their childhood. Uh, the first is uh, Mark Wahlberg, Marky Mark. He had a uh, been a drug addict. He was addicted to cocaine at age 13 and had stopped going to school at age 14. At age 16, he uh, was accused of uh, a violent crime against a refugee and sentenced to, to two years in prison. Uh, during his stay behind bars, he realized that his life was spiraling out of control and uh, turned to his parish priest who helped him uh, change his life and uh, from there he joined his brother with the new kids on the block interesting right very interesting <laughs> I didn't even know any about that and uh, now he's a gazillionaire somewhere making movies another one is uh, 50 Cent the rapper uh, of course everybody probably knows that he was uh, in a gang and and was shot several times, um, but then went to a correctional boot camp. One of those programs that you mentioned is designed to rehabilitate, and it worked. Hmm. Decided to change his life and, and go into music. Another one was uh, Snoop Dogg, who was uh, in a gang, and uh, same thing, got in trouble with the law and uh, changed his life to going to music. So there are some success stories. Um, can you remember a success story? Yeah. Um, celebrities? No, one, uh, somebody that you knew. Sure. Well, I got one of both. You know, one celebrity that, uh, that had gotten in a lot of trouble as a child was uh, Hank Williams, someone that I'm a, I'm a big fan of, the old country mm -hmm. singer. Um, and obviously turned out well. Uh, you know, a lot of people consider him the greatest country artist of all time. So I think he did okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I had a client, uh, one of the first children that I represented, who was charged with burglary of a habitat, or excuse me, burglary of a building. And um, we worked through the case. We got him on the deferred prosecution, like I had mentioned earlier. And now I still keep up with his mother. And now he's actually in law school in Houston. Um, awesome. Yeah. And it's amazingly enough, him being in the system was what inspired him to become an attorney. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Wow. That is something. So what's the future of juvenile justice? So 
I think it's important to know that there's kind of two parts to the juvenile justice system. We've been mainly talking about uh, the court system, but the other part of it is the school. Uh, you know, a lot of children commit crimes while they're on school property, um, and so the school has to make a decision as to what they're going to do with the child. So they do that through things called, we just call them school hearings, actually, but um, they're designed to either potentially expel the child um, or suspend the child. So I think that the future of juvenile law is that a lot of schools are going to kind of handle these on their own and then not um, send these off to the DA's office so that there's no uh, criminal record that a child has to deal with. The school can kind of handle it in-house. Um, I think that's a good thing um, because it's going to be a less crowded system, uh, you know, within the juvenile justice department uh, in whatever county it's in. The only thing that I worry about is how well equipped are these schools to, to handle these types of situations. Well, there's if you're expelled from a public school, there's an alternative school, right? That's correct. And and um, when I use the term expel, this is the, the, the phrase that the school districts use. They're not gone forever. Basically, they go to an alternative school for a certain period of time, and then they can typically come back to the school. Um, there's a lot of factors that go into it, but that's the goal, is that the child will be rehabilitated and be able to move back to the school with no issue. And the alternative school is more regimented, more strict, more supervision. Correct, yeah. And, and the alternative schools, they do focus on, um, you know, like I said, uh, working with kids um, that might be victims in these types of situations. And, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, I had represented um, children who were prostitutes, and uh, it's it's tricky because a child can't consent to sexual intercourse. Right. So it's it's a good thing in the sense that the court looks at these children as as victims. Mm -hmm. um, they don't consider them offenders, and so um, they can put them in programs to help them deal with uh, you know the trauma that they've been through. And my hope is that um, the alternative schools will be better at dealing with that, as, as good as the the, uh, the county is. Mm -hmm. Okay. So going back to our discussion on being tried as an adult, uh, what did you call that process, a transfer? Yeah, it's called a certify and transfer or certification hearing. And there was a, a big Supreme Court case that made some significant improvements for children um, a few decades ago. Yeah. Right? Let's talk about that. Sure. Yeah. There was a case um, in the 1960s, uh, Kent v. State, uh, where there was a 16-year-old boy. Um, he was detained and interrogated by police because he was suspected of a series of robberies and a series of sexual assaults. Now, the child uh, did admit involvement uh, in these crimes, and so he was then possibly going to be sent to an adult court. So there was a certification hearing, and um, the child's attorney was actually denied uh, a series of documents and a series of records that could have potentially helped him out in this hearing. So uh, an appeal was done. This went up to the Supreme Court from the, the district court, and the court basically decided that, at that point that this attorney should have been given all of the information. And, you know, they were stating that basically, you know, at minimum, a juvenile court should be able to participate in these proceedings and have all of the same information in these proceedings that the prosecution has. Um, and being denied that didn't allow him to have a fair trial, essentially, or a fair hearing. So that portion of it, uh, of the system, basically got overhauled and um, was extremely helpful to allowing minors uh, to this information that they didn't have previously. They need a good defense, too. Yeah, and you can't have a defense if you don't have the information. <laughs> right. What are some of the most common infractions that juveniles find themselves facing in this area? Sure. So, I mean, I can definitely say that in my experience, um, misdemeanor crimes are much, much more common um, than felony crimes. I would say probably a good 70% of my practice was dealing with minor crimes like uh, minor theft, shoplifting, um, minor drug offenses, uh, stuff like that. Sometimes we saw assaults, um, you know, getting in a fight at school or getting in a fight with your parents, uh, but that was less common. Violent crimes, for sure, are less common. I read 
on the internet some statistics from 2019 in Texas there were 4,753 uh, children charged with either murder, manslaughter, forcible rape, robbery, or aggravated assault. And that comes from Texas Department of Public Safety. That's a small number compared to the total population of, of kids in Texas. Uh, they say that the rate uh, it, of children being prosecuted for these offenses is 144.5 per 100,000 children. So that's a pretty small rate. Yeah, and, you know, it actually is um, on the rise. Uh, you know, there are, we're seeing a rise in uh, cases that are being given to the D or transferred to the DA's office from schools that are uh, have any type of violence associated with them, um, you know, which, again, is kind of good and bad. I mean, the children do need the resources to be able to be rehabilitated, um, but also you know, these, they're going to need help in schools, too. If they're going to be doing their probation and going back to these schools, uh, you know, I think that there needs to be more programs in the schools to help them assimilate back in. Right. Well, the program I think of is anger management. Um, that's that's big with domestic abuse in, in the, the family law system. And I think that maybe kids could benefit from that as well um, because they model you know, what they see at home, and it tends to be a generational problem. And so uh, I agree with you that maybe something could be done to stop the cycle by uh, rehabilitating the children and, and just letting them know that there's other outlets for dealing with their anger. Um, maybe somebody like Will Smith would have benefited from that maybe <laughs> maybe and you know it's it's so true because the the sad thing about juvenile law and frankly one of the reasons that a lot of attorneys don't like practicing it is because so many of these kids are committing crimes um, because they don't know how to deal with trauma um, mm -hmm. and a lot of times it's trauma at home um, it's a sad fact that the majority of the children that i have represented um, have been neglected by their parents, have been abused by their parents. Um, and so it's something that they, they really need help with. And I think grief counseling is, is just as important mm -hmm. as, uh, you know, as anger management. And the parents uh, have programs too. And sometimes the judge will ask them to complete the programs. It's not required, but they'll give them access to those programs. Like uh, parenting classes. Absolutely. Okay, we have to take another break. Uh, when we come back, we'll be talking about legacy. So stay tuned. estate questions have profound impacts on your business or estate. Changes of ownership to your real estate could impact your business or your legacy to your children and grandchildren. It may be less expensive to prevent a mistake than to correct one. If you have real estate questions, it's a good idea to contact an attorney who focuses on last wills, living trust, and tax-protected inheritance plans. Call today to schedule your no-cost legal consultation. 210-530-4278. That's 210-530-4278. Marquardt Law firm. Welcome back to Talk Law Radio. I'm Todd Marquardt here with attorney Daniel Palmer, who has significant experience in juvenile justice. We've been talking about what the juvenile justice system looks like and how it's different from adult criminal justice. And uh, now we're going to talk about what to do or what are some options that somebody could do if uh, they had a beneficiary or child and they were planning on leaving that person an in, in inheritance but didn't want that inheritance to be squandered or used to further their criminal lifestyle. And so this is the legacy segment sponsored by Marquardt Law Firm. Attorneys at Marquardt Law Firm focus on business and estate law, including last wills, living trusts, and tax-protected inheritance plans. So we have uh, a few clients every year, at least, that have a family member or a beneficiary that 
you know, they, they're going to leave an inheritance to because you can't take it with you. Sure. <laughs> and so, uh, so some of the planning here is based on uh, what you don't want your beneficiaries to do, what you want to curb, stop, prevent, or prohibit, and others are what you want to encourage, like education or charitable giving or uh, contributions to society. So some of those ideas, um, the case studies that I'm familiar with are you know, where you have a, a conservative person that does not uh, want their beneficiaries getting addi addicted to drugs or alcohol, and so they give the, the, a trustee responsibility to oversee uh, the beneficiary's life. And uh, if the beneficiary wants distributions, if they want money out of their trust, they either have to uh, take a test uh, a urine analysis, or they have to, um, if, if they're already in trouble or already addicted, um, then they might have to go to rehab. And so that's, uh, those are some customized provisions that, that can be written into the trust in addition to taking care of their health, education, uh, maintenance and support, because we, we meet a lot of people um, who are transferring significant wealth to a younger generation, and they don't want that money to be used in, in a negative way. Um, a lot of times people work hard and they save and they skip out on things that they would have spent their money on in, in order to leave something to the next generation to make things better. It's like planting a tree today even though you're not going to benefit from it so that decades later there will be a big tree that will provide a lot of shade for somebody yeah and I, I think that's important and i i think that you know another thing that a lot of parents don't consider um and something that we deal with in our practice is if they're going to be away from the child for long periods of time maybe because of their job or whatever it may be um, they would want an adult to be there not only to take care of them, but to make any type of uh, you know, financial or medical decisions for them, mm -hmm. too. Um, so whenever I talk to uh, younger parents, especially with younger children, um, I ask them if they'd be interested in doing some type of you know, temporary guardianship uh, of the child or temporary power of attorney to allow another family member to make those decisions for them and keep them on the right path. Yeah, my wife and I always use that when we go on vacation without the kids. It's important. Um, it just says, you know, that grandparents or whoever can make emergency medical decisions, especially when we went to Cancun. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, we went so many years ago. It was before uh, cell phones were really popular, so it, it would have been a challenge to get in touch with us. Yeah, and I... Um... I have a friend of mine who had a client um, who they had that form or they had that document and they were, were able to make um, drug rehabilitation decisions for the child because um, it was considered a medical need. Oh, right. And the parents were out of town. They were out of the country, actually. And so that, that individual was allowed to get that child in rehab. Great. Yeah, that would be really beneficial because if you don't have that, then uh, the drug addiction can lead to death. Of course. Yeah, so we don't want to prevent that. And you can name a temporary guardian, or you, and you could name a permanent one. So I usually bring that up when you have the permanent guardian who you think would really um, raise the kids like you would, but they live in another state. Um, and you have a, a second person who you're thinking, well, this person lives... Uh, down the street or in at least in the same city and they could take guardianship right away and and then that would give time for the more permanent guardian to get things in order sure. to, to make room for another child mm -hmm. so i think that that would be important because if nobody is uh, ready to take possession of a child when the unfortunate tragedy occurs, then maybe they just get 
put into a group home with child protective services. It happens a lot. We want to prevent that uh, by planning ahead. You can be specific about who you trust and about who you don't trust. So another thing you can do with these guardianship designation forms is say who you don't want. And years ago, when I first started practicing, I was helping a a young mother and her young uh, child. And through a a family law custody dispute, and the mom was really scared that the the father was addicted to drugs and and did not want her daughter to be, you know, neglected while he was under the influence. And so we we were able to successfully um, require supervision any time that he was in possession of his daughter, which ultimately led to him not wanting that. Um, But then we put specific provisions in in a trust that said if mom dies then the the trust funds could be used to fund the uh, proceeding to oppose uh, custody uh, for the father to have custody of his daughter because again she wanted to um, stop that from happening because it could put daughter in a dangerous situation so uh, the presumption in family law is that a biological parent is presumed to be the in the child's best interest as as custodian or guardian and so in addition to setting funds aside i also say well one thing you might want to do is uh, have a file of evidence that you know this uh, guardian would use in that proceeding to say, well, here's all the evidence why uh, the other biological parent would not be a good idea to be guardian or or conservator for the child. So you have to prepare all that stuff because what if you had to dig through somebody's house files to find all that information? Sure. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up um, that type that situation because I've seen it before in our practice. Um, where I'll have a parent who's basically a single parent because the other one doesn't want to be involved or is addicted to drugs or whatever it may be. And sometimes they'll say, well, you know, I don't even know why I should get an estate estate plan done to prepare for that. And you don't want, even if they do go to the other biological parent, um, let's say it's not dangerous, it's just that the the marriage didn't work and um, maybe I don't want that parent having access to my child's inheritance sure they're going to use it for their their own use and not for the child well you you can set up a a trustee to manage that money either a bank or a family member or a friend and then at least the the irresponsible ex-spouse is not going to have access to the money right some other situations where I ran across this was um, a lady whose husband had decimated their savings by gambling, you know, with the online uh, video gambling uh, that's become popular. Um, you know, money can just go out the door. And if this lady had received her inheritance in a trust, then the husband would not have been able to access those accounts. And so it would have been protected from that. He can uh, be irresponsible with his own money, but would have been prevented from being irresponsible with her money. Another one that I see a lot that's uh, more positive is uh, people that want to leave a legacy of education. I I have a, a couple of clients who had to change their family tree by being the first one to graduate from high school, the first one to go to college, the first one to get their master's degree, the first one to go to professional school. And that's the value that they value most is uh, rather than money, I want to leave them in education. And so they say that these funds can only be used for education and you know, keep going to school if if you want to. 
And I think that, that that's the best legacy that anybody could leave because then that sure it's like the old proverb uh give a man a fish and he'll eat for today teach a man if to fish and he'll eat for a lifetime uh you're a fisherman i am i am <laughs> so i can definitely connect with that and i definitely think that that's one of those gifts that the child might not understand at the time how important it is but once they get a little bit older you know they'll thank their parents that they were able to give this to them and the a gift of bypassing the student loan process that would be awesome oh i wish <laughs> Okay, uh, before we end our show today, I want to mention that we're looking for a new probate litigation attorney. And so if you know an attorney that uh, is not happy where he or she is working right now and wants to explore new opportunities and they have some experience in probate or experience in civil litigation, please have them call us. They can find our contact information on marquartlawfirm.com and uh, I'd like to close with prayer dear God thank you for the opportunity to spread your word on the radio today please help those who suffer from addiction please help them break the chains and slavery of addiction and please help loved ones of those who are addicted to use ethical and legal means to protect the inheritance and legacy that they pass down May we always remember that our hope and assurance is in Jesus. Grant us strength and courage until Jesus comes again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.